The resonances of slavery in Get on the Bus uh, do a lot of work in the film. That resonance is there not to make an exact identification, but instead I think really just to elevate the stakes of what's being asked in the film. What's being asked in the film is that black men sit together on this bus on their way to the Million Man March, a march that never figures in their own transformation or at least steps towards transformation, but to sit really on this bus and examine their own relationship to masculinity and their identity as men and as black men. It's painful in many ways because what that requires is that each of the characters in the bu on the bus uh, face up to their own failings and their own struggles, or I think in the case of, of the two queer figures in the bus, uh, come to terms with, or at least begin to articulate, a sense of not even belonging, despite the fact that black masculinity is their identity, uh, not belonging, and then what that means to be among other black men who don't want you to be in their bus, literally and figuratively, uh, not wanting to be in the same place, share the same space in terms of identity and meaning. And so it's a painful film in that way, and I think in some way, in a certain sense, you could say that the kinds of questions that the characters ask of themselves, of each other, and therefore of us as viewers, is enough to, to elevate the stakes of the film. But I think that um, slavery and the, the images of slavery and the evocations of, of enslavement across the film and the way it resonates in each of these conversations is important to really do two things. One, to keep our eyes on this in the, the most serious way possible, right? To understand that this is not, um, this is not a, a sort of therapy session for the privilege. This is about survival and identity. But also because I think in talking about slavery or, or evoking slavery and talking about, about masculine identity formation, Spike Lee is able to do what I suggested at the, the close of the last piece on Get on the Bus. He's able to end in the interrogative. You know, what would it mean to re-ask this question? What would it mean very much, um, as I've talked about previously, to engage in this work of self-invention? Because I think self-invention is, is, and self-creation is, is so critical to Spike Lee's vision, but also... Um, the way it functions in this film is related to slavery because one of the things that slavery in the U.S. did and in the, the New World generally did was post-emancipation asked the question, you know, what does it mean to be black in an anti-black world? And in this way, I think Spike Lee is saying the same kind of question at the end of the film. You know, what does it mean to be a black man? in a world that's never allowed black men to self-create except in terms of the abjection of women or the abjection of one another along the lines of sexuality or, or these sorts of things. Sort of stuff that we talked about in previous films, or he talked about in previous films. But also in talking about slavery, I think it's not just the bookends of the film, right? Those are clearly the most emphatic, right? The opening... Uh, the opening shot of, of historical shackles 
and then the shackles of the at the end of the film that had uh, bound Evan and Evan Jr., a father and son, together for the duration of, of Get on the Bus. They're left at the feet of uh, the Lincoln Memorial. And in doing that, right, he bookends, Spike Lee bookends the film with the evocations of slavery and emancipation. But it's also in the mid- middle of the film, right? Um, and at key parts of the film. As I always say when I teach, and certainly when I write about Spike Lee, um, I always come back to the, the role of Stevie Wonder in any film where a Stevie Wonder song uh, appears on the soundtrack. It's really interesting to me in this, in Get on the Bus, that the, the, the two songs that matter are a, an original song, or three songs that matter, original song by Michael Jackson, um, which is really just a tribute to the, to the Million Man March, um, a Kirk Franklin song, which is a, you know, about giving one's life you know, over putting putting who and what you are in God's hands. And then Stevie Wonder. But it's a Stevie Wonder song that's actually a Bob Marley song, which is a redemption song. And what redemption song, of course, is about is about reckoning with enslavement and what that means. Um, what it means to step out of the shadow of enslavement and assert oneself as a person and one's collective as people. So slavery in, is evoked there in that song in really important ways. And again, with Stevie Wonder, that's, I think, where we can always locate Spike Lee's conscience. There's also, for me, I think the most important scene or most most compelling scene, I should say. I don't know about important, but um, it's as important as any other. But certainly the most compelling scene for me is when Evan Jr. Uh, runs away and his father chases him and the other men on the bus try to help find Evan Jr. And he, they're trying to find him in um, so, sort of, you know, forest or grove of trees and they're sort of running down the hill in the dark and um, they have, a couple of them have flashlights and there's the, you know, yelling and screaming, you know, where are you, where are you, we're trying to find you, and this sort of thing. And for me, it's absolutely reminiscent of an iconic sort of cinematic portrait, or portrayal of, of slave catchers chasing an, uh, an escaped uh, enslaved person. And I think in that way, there's this moment where there's something that's going on between Evan Jr. and Evan Sr. that evokes that relation of slavery, or, I mean, obviously that they're shackled to one another, but also that there's something about their relationship that is enslaving them. There's something about their understanding as as a young man and a, and a grown man, right, father and son, something about their conceptions of masculinity and masculine identity as a father, as a son, that is impeding their freedom to be who they are, right, to have a life together. And so I think in this moment of escape and chase, it's an evocation of slavery, not because simply they were chained together, but rather that what binds them together in terms of their emotional relationship up to that moment, right, is the anger of the son and the reluctance of the father to take responsibility and understand what it means to 
to make a relationship with his son. He very much, uh, Evan Sr., very much wants his son to respect him. Why respect him? Respect him simply because he's a grown man and, quote, your father. But that's not enough, right? That's a, a form of masculine identification that understands his manhood, right? Evan Sr.'s manhood to be bound up with the father as an object of respect, earned or unearned, doesn't matter. It's simply the, the demand for respect. Now, that is incompatible with the kind of relationship that the two have. And what Evan Jr. is enslaved by is his incapacity to see his father as anything other than a villain and his refusal to forgive and find a new way to relate to his father. Now, in both cases, I think those emotions and that emotional life between the, the two of them, father and son, and between them and themselves, right, as individuals, those, those relationships make sense to me. There's nothing strange about why they feel that way. But I think what Spike Lee is trying to point out there is that if we remain enslaved by, or if they remain enslaved by, or bound by um, these conceptions of respect and what a father is, then they are forever bound to each other in this way that demeans and limits them. And what emancipates them in that scene is the moment where Evan Jr. and Evan Sr. sit together and Evan Jr. is able to express his anger and Evan Sr. is able to express his deep regret, his regret that he had ever been like that. And all he then asks in that moment, which he had never asked of his son previously, is that Evan Jr. just give him a chance. And I think that idea of just giving me a chance what does it mean for a father and son to give each other a chance, right? That's also Evan Sr. talking to himself and talking to Evan Jr. And Evan Jr. in hearing this is hearing it coming from his father, but no doubt also hearing it come from himself. Like what would it mean for us as a father and son to make a relationship for the first time? That's what it, a chance is, right? It's not a chance to be what I once was because there's nothing in the past to retrieve except pain. And if there's nothing in the past to receive, retrieve except pain, then the options are sit with that pain and let it haunt us, let it, let it bind us and constrain us, enslave us, shackle us, hold us back, or emancipate ourselves from that and find ways to begin again. Now, that idea of beginning again is related to this notion, if not just an, a, a synonym for, this notion of self-invention and self-creation that is so critical to understanding the early Spike Lee films, and perhaps all Spike Lee films, but certainly uh, these early films. You know, that, that what it means to wake up means to understand new possibilities that were, one was asleep. Right? What does it mean to get on the bus? It means to be shackled by the past, shackled by habits, shackled by the damage that one carries with oneself as a black man in the world across all of these differences inside the bus. It means to, to self-invention means to, to unshackle from that and step into the possibility 
of other and new possibilities. What those are, again, and I said this at the close of the previous uh, piece on, on Get on the Bus, Spike Lee gives us no answer. But that's the point, is that the film is not interested in being an answer to any of this. The film is interested in asking the kinds of questions that make a better question possible. Because a better question is not made possible by simply um, pretending like the father and son could just go back to the way things were. Or that the homophobic or even just sort of neutral to homophobia, tolerant of homophobia men on the bus can somehow just go back to a different relationship they had to the queer characters on the bus. That can't happen. Those relationships, all of them on the bus, between the people on the bus, but also the people on the bus between the, themselves, right, inside themselves, all of those need to be remade, need to be thought new, because there is nothing to go back to, right? In this way, I think that <clears throat> there is a deep Afro-pessimism to this film that is also about different possibilities. I think that the, uh, the, the journey on the bus is as much about a kind of apocalyptic event as anything else. It's about exposing the intractable and un, 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 uh, limits that can't be withdrawn right, that are inherent in the world that we know. And that's for everybody on the bus, again, in relation to each other and, and as they have as individuals to themselves. So there's a kind of apocalyptic event that that bus is, right, at the psychological level in terms of understanding the affective or, or emotional and spiritual possibilities of black masculine identity formation, that it has to depart from the present and the past in order to be a different kind of future. I think also, if we're thinking, if we're gonna talk about um, about these figures, figures of enslavement, there is also the really important, it's a very short part of the film, but again, I think it's always important to note these when they appear in a Spike Lee film, the appearance of the police. I, I believe they're in Tennessee, and a police officer boards the bus and the way the actors are on the bus is really chilling. The fear that they bring to the screen as the officer peruses the bus, it's at night with a flashlight, played by Randy Quaid, very well done actually, uh, well done uh, performance. And that moment where for all of their differences on the bus, they actually have a moment of contact with each other around the presence of the police. Because it is really the only scene in the film that, uh, aside from Jeremiah's death at the end, that halts all of the other kinds of negative relationships that people on the bus have with one another. In this case, they're reduced to silence and they sit in silence on the bus in the aftermath of the police boarding the bus and then leaving. And so there's, again, like I had said in discussing um, Malcolm X, there's a way that the film is in, inevitably, invariably, going to have to be framed by an account of, of white terror. And that comes in the context of the police, that for whatever work these men are doing on the bus, 
they still have to live in a world where the police play this kind of shackling and constraining and terror role of a terrorist in black lives. I think to sort of fixate on this notion of, of self-invention and, and, and what, what exactly is done in terms of the radical work on the bus, the radical work of, of, of emancipation from the past and present modes of relation to self and other, is through, um, through the character of Jeremiah who's played by Ossie Davis and the elder on the bus. And he plays a number of important roles. Um, at first, they see him, see him as a little bit ridiculous um, and sort of make fun of him. Um, then they see his pain when he recounts um, why he's going to the Million Man March. You know, because it I, I comes up as sort of like, why are you coming as an old man? Um, you know, it's kind of a gathering for young folks. And, and he tells just a really awful story about his desire to please his white bosses and the kinds of effects that had on him that he had to um, bury everything about his authentic blackness. He couldn't voice support for the civil rights movement. He couldn't ever speak up for any other black people and had to stay meek and quiet and not assert his full self and full possibilities. And the way that trickled over to the effects it had in his home with his marriage and the, the, the traumas uh, of work and of white racism and, and the effect on his domestic life. And it leaves him abject in the end, loses his job, you know, is not really in a position right, to start over again. And so, when he's on the way to the Million Man March, there's just this sense of Jeremiah having one last chance to begin again, one last chance to start again. And he dies, but he dies, I think, having lived a completely different kind of life on that bus because he plays a role that so many elders play in Spike Lee's films, and here he's picking up very much on a sort of cultural trope uh, uh, reality of, of African-American life, which is the role of, of elders in a community, um, not just in terms of respect and love as an abstraction, but as, as sources of insight and wisdom and increasingly a model for a different kind of life. In this case, what Jeremiah is for Spike Lee is not someone who lived a life that maybe some of these younger folks on the bus could learn from, but that he's lived the kind of life that emphasizes the necessity for survival, right? for any sense of thriving as a human, requires that one live fully as not just a man, but as a black man. And to live as a black man without restraint in relation to both of those things. But the manhood part is still in process. I don't think Jeremiah has much to say about that. But in terms of blackness, you know, I think that what Jeremiah is really trying to tell the bus, or what he does tell the bus, is that this identity shared between them on the bus has to be bigger 
than the kinds of conflicts they have, whether it's over skin color or profession or sexuality. But also, I think part of what Jeremiah represents in being someone who comes from a really terrible place and wants a kind of redemption, wants um, some sort of reckoning at the Million Man March with his own life, is that the elders don't bear a precedent for the men on the bus. In fact, the opposite. What they tell, right? what Jeremiah tells as the elder and therefore as you know, representative elders, um, you know, this, it's the way characters work, especially in a film like Get on the Bus. But what he's there to instruct on is that there is no such thing as a precedent for black men. And without a precedent, there's a kind of empty future, but empty in a productive way, or empty in a way that leads to regressive behavior, regressive uh, identity formation. But it doesn't have to be regressive. It can be what I think Spike Lee is trying to get out of these characters, which is a commitment to finding an alternative way, to finding a different kind of way to be a man. And that's difficult because what people want is if you reject A, they want to know, well, what takes the place of A? You reject this sense of black uh, masculine identity formation. What takes its place? But part of, I think, what Get on the Bus is about is that the, there is no final destination, right? The Million Man March is not a march that answers the questions for the men on the bus, but rather that the ride on the bus, the desire to be different kinds of men, is the point of the march. That that desire takes people into the horizon of the unprecedented, and anytime we're in the horizon of the unprecedented, it has an element of terror to it. And the element of terror to it comes from not having anyone or anything to emulate, not having an ideal, not having something to imitate. Because so much of how we understand ourselves and know the world is through the imitation of the way people we want to be or people whose lives are exemplary in some ways, the way they lived in the world, the way they understood and knew, had relations of knowing and being. And without a precedent, right, we're left in the way that the film leads us, that you never really arrive at that destination, but that the movement from where one was toward the destination is a moment of dropping at each step all of those regressive elements, all those shackles, all those constraints, all those constrictions, all those limits, start leaving those behind, right? Leaving those behind in order to open onto the horizon of the unprecedented. And the horizon of the unprecedented is something that draws us because without it, all we have are these this history of damaging and damaged relationships to women. It's very heterosexual film in terms of its, its treatment that way, um, in terms of relationship to women, but also in relationship to other men. And as I keep saying, in relationship of the self to the self. Again, this is cinema and the interrogative, 
But here, a sentiment in the, in the interrogative, that's saying, you know, if we are emancipated, we're not emancipated to a new land. We are emancipated to a new question. And it's the most basic of questions to ask. Who and what am I?